So we've talked about what critical race theory is. We've talked about what critical race theory believes. We've talked about where critical race theory comes from so far, going back pretty deep. And now we're going to talk about what critical race theory does. So I said at the very beginning of this series that we have to keep in mind that critical race theory is as critical race theory does. I know it's kind of trite and Forrest Gumpy, but it's true. The critical theory, as we heard this morning, is defined by its social activism, by its commitment to social activism and by doing social activism in a particular way in service to its vision and its ideology. Uh, that vision, of course, is an idealized version of society, certain historical possibilities that have become regarded as utopian possibilities. And so we have to understand what critical race theory does in order to understand fully what it is, but if we're going to attempt to counter critical race theory, we also have to know how it behaves. You hear repeatedly, for example, right now that critical race theory is not taught in schools, and everybody knows that this is somehow a lie, and it's not clear how it's somehow a lie, and we say that critical race praxis is being done in schools is the correct way to understand that. But if you understand that a critical theory must contain critical praxis, to be a critical theory by the third definitional requirement, then critical race praxis is required by definition as a part of critical race theory. So if you taught about critical race theory the way that I'm teaching about critical race theory now from a position that's outside of it, that doesn't agree with it, as a set of ideas that have a history, that have um, you know, how they conceive of the world, et cetera, without applying it, you are not actually doing critical race theory. On the other hand, if you teach ideas that are rooted in the critical race mindset and you apply them to children with the effort of doing what critical race theory does, then you are teaching critical race theory even if you're not teaching the formal stuff that I'm teaching. So a lot of good liberals get caught on this little trick, this little trap, and they say we can't ban critical race theory. We have to teach the ideas. We want to inoculate people by exposing them to the ideas and explaining why they're wrong and showing them countervailing ideas. But that's only possible when that's being led and taught by people who would be outside of that system. It turns out you can't trust a Marxist. If you put them in charge of the education, they're going to do Marxian education. And this is what critical race theory does. So I said critical race theory is as critical race theory does. Critical race theory only does one thing, exactly one thing. It raises critical consciousness of race. All critical theories do exactly one thing. They raise critical consciousness. They attempt to take people and get them to see how their lives are miserable, more miserable than they think, and that they are committed to a the system of power that generates their own servitude or some kind of injustice, and to awaken in them the revolutionary consciousness that doesn't prefer step-by-step -step progress or incrementalism that doesn't like liberal methods, it doesn't like equality, it doesn't like legal reasoning or enlightenment rationalism or neutral principles of constitutional law, it rejects in critical race theory things like colorblindness and so on. It's to make people see the world the way critical race theorists see the world. Marxism only did one thing, it attempted to raise critical, uh, a critical consciousness of class, which they call class consciousness, and the idea was that if you get enough working class to have a class consciousness and enough of the bourgeoisie to form a vanguard with their class consciousness, to usher the thing along, that was Leninism. When you hear Marxism-Leninism, that was Lenin's idea. Well, we'll just make a vanguard movement out of the bourgeoisie, and we'll, we know how it's supposed to be, so we'll usher the stupid proles along because they won't do it for themselves. The idea in Marxism is if you awaken enough of a class consciousness or critical consciousness, as it's phrased in uh, critical theory, or liberatory consciousness, 
or a critical race consciousness or racial consciousness, you'll see it in critical race theory, then you'll have a sufficient basis by which you can make that dictatorship of the whatever, proletariat, anti-racist, liberation movement, whatever it is, and you can overthrow the oppressive system because enough people understand that it's oppressive. In other words, what you're doing is you're taking people who are in a state of dependency, to paraphrase directly from the first chapter of Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed, and you're showing them that their state of dependency and oppression, or their state of oppression is because they're in a state of dependency on the system, and rather than telling them you can take responsibility for yourself and rise up build something with your stuff, with your property, with your life, with your skills, with your character, and become something that you aren't and you can get out of that cycle of dependency that traps the oppressed or the lower class. Rather, instead, they say, no, we're gonna teach you to hate the system. Your exit isn't responsibility, your exit is resentment. And if we get enough people resentful enough, then we can overthrow the system. And that's how this actually works. And so the only thing critical race theory does is tries to raise a critical consciousness of race. They believe that if enough people have a critical consciousness of race, then we will enter into a situation in which we can sufficiently empower critical race theorists and they'll have a sufficient sympathetic support so that we can flip over the whole society. They don't know how it'll happen. As Theodore Adorno, the neo-Marxist we talked about this morning, put it, there's, it is not possible to cast a positive image of the utopia. They don't know what it looks like. They just know that if we all have the right consciousness, we'll eventually get there. And this is why, of course, we have a lifelong commitment to an ongoing process of self-reflection, self-critique, and social activism, as Robin DiAngelo said, at the heart of anti-racism as praxis in what critical race theory actually does. There's a analogy that we can draw here that I thought when I first thought this up about a year ago that it was silly. I wrote it, started to write a thing, and I was like, oh, it's one of those stupid, like, kitschy Lindsay articles. It's like, oh, here's this quirky thing and ha ha. And then I realized recently, I'm like, no, that's actually what it is. There's this analogy from AI research that if you come up with a artificial intelligence of sufficient sophistication, but not necessarily terribly intelligent, it's just good at solving certain problems and you put its uh, optimization function in the wrong place, you can actually destroy the universe. And it's called the paperclip maximizer problem. So you imagine a, AI system, it's not got high levels of general intelligence, but it's very good at machine learning and solving problems, for example. And its optimization function that's programmed into it is to just make the largest number of paper clips possible, whether that's by making them directly or by making tools to make more paper clips out of anything. So at first it's you know extracting metals and bending them into shape, refining them and bending them into shape. Later it's maybe even doing, you know, nuclear manipulations to materials to change their essential composition so that they actually become metals that you can make paper clips out of, or maybe they're plastic paper clips or whatever they happen to be. You're manipulating the materials at a fundamental level. If the machine is smart enough, it can, if it's possible, it can find a way. That's the AI part. But if its optimizing function is to just turn everything into paper clips, you have a big problem on your hands because it will eventually turn everything into paper clips or tools to make paper clips, which will eventually be disassembled and make more paper clips. Critical race theory is a paper clip optimizing tool paperclip maximizer, but what it's maximizing instead is critical race consciousness, in other words, critical race theorists. Its entire objective is to make the largest number of critical race theorists possible and discard any materials that can't be turned into critical race theorists, whether that's individuals, whether that's institutions. It colonizes institutions, turns them into critical race theory producing entities and units. 
It gets inside of you, and you're supposed to become now an evangelist or a viral agent to go spread critical race theory to your friends or the institutions you're involved in. It does this, of course, since we just talked about Hegel and Marx, et cetera, through a dialectical process that's typically pretty predictable, although it has a lot of other tricks. A lot of you have already commented to me that there's something to do with the linguistic manipulations that it uses. Um, and so that's kind of what we're going to get into. Just to kind of frame out how critical race theory operates, though, and I think this will feel very familiar to people, I want to read to you from critical race theory, the key writings that form the movement, where they describe the emergence of critical race theory from critical legal studies. It's actually kind of hilarious that they put this in here. And I think it's a kind of paradigm example. Um, so to kind of frame it out, because I didn't take the whole quote, I'm just gonna read a little bit of like some notes that I made and I'll tell you when, when the quotes are happening. But this is from, like I said, they're describing this 1986 movement. In 1986, by this point, the critical legal studies movement from which critical race theory emerged, like a cordyceps mushroom, was banging. It was rapidly growing. Progressive left law was gaining a lot of power and a lot of influence. It had already done a lot of things. And so in a fateful decision, the femcrits, that's what they call them, that were running the conference, so feminists, feminist legal scholars, decided it would be a good idea to invite some people and especially women of color to speak at the 1986 National Critical Legal Studies Conference, which was gaining tons of support, having many hundreds, if not a thousand or more, attendees by 1986. And so they cite this incident that happened at the 1986 conference as kind of the origin point of the movement that became critical race theory as a movement of activists and scholars. So it says, after the FemCrit conference, organizers asked scholars of color to facilitate several uh, concurrently held discussions about race. So they had them come in and do um, panels. What happened was the result was mayhem, absolute mayhem, as you might expect, and it's the exact kind that's generated by identity politics. It's a very insightful window. First of all, you'll find it familiar, like I said, and second of all, it's a very insightful window to how the dialectic progresses with dialectically charged activists. So here's what they write about what happened. The handful of scholars of color attending this conference designed the workshop to uncover and discuss various dimensions of racial power as manifested within critical legal studies. Though the practice of uncovering and contesting power within law school institutions was a standard feature of CLS politics, the attempt to situate this practice within CLS as a white institution drew a surprisingly defensive response. The pitched and heated exchange that erupted in response to our query, what is it about the whiteness of CLS that discourages participation by people of color? revealed that CLS's hip, cutting-edge irreverence toward establishment practices could easily disintegrate into hand-wringing hysteria when brought back home. So what happened? They brought critical race theorists in their proto-form. They weren't fully critical race theorists yet. People who would go on to become critical race theorists, and I, they don't name them, so I don't know who they are. I guess I could try to dig that up. To their conference, let them have a racial politics panel at their critical legal studies conference, and they immediately took the stage and said, critical legal studies itself is racist. You, the most progressive people in law, are racists. You're not making race the central construct for understanding inequality. You're not centering race, kind of the only thing it does. They attempted to raise a racial consciousness according to what would become critical race theory, and what happened? Predictable, divisive mayhem. 
People got upset. People who had worked their entire careers to improve racial issues within law from a progressive standpoint had just got called racists. And when they said, hold on, you know, we're trying to do this, they were accused of getting defensive. Defensiveness is now labeled white fragility or white rage, and the extortion racket proceeded, the wildfire was set, a precipitating event had occurred, and this whole environment melted down. Critical legal studies, nobody talks about that today, but critical race theory emerged out of the ashes. It entered an institution, it established a dialectical move by positioning itself in opposition to what's actually happening along an inflammatory dynamic, and it burned the thing to the ground and took it over. Critical legal studies got co-opted by that one simple thing. And I bet you, you have at least one organization that you've been involved with that you've seen that exact thing happen to in the last five years. One move. That's all it takes. That's what they do. So what's happening with that dynamic is that they are doing a handful of things. And if you've had diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, racial sensitivity, or unconscious bias training at your work, you're familiar with this. They operationalize the environment. They come in and they teach you diversity junk. In a critical legal studies environment, they didn't have to operationalize. They were already progressives. They're ready to get burned to the ground. They were just ready to split. They also had probably already been reading some race crit. They're already operationalized. But at your workplace, they're gonna come in and have a diversity training. And they're gonna operationalize the environment. They're gonna get people familiar with those ideas. They've heard them before. But they're also gonna actually radicalize some people. They're gonna be shocked. They're gonna get that defensive feeling that Robin D'Angelo calls white fragility. And they're gonna go into a spiral of oh no. And it might only be a few of them, but they're going to become sympathizers. And then you have people who are familiar with it. You're also going to figure out who the dissidents are who don't want any part of it. And those people are easy to target as enemies or to start hounding or put into struggle sessions later. They polarize the environment. And then eventually somebody drops a match in the polarized environment, a precipitating event happens, the backlash to this provocation, which was, in their own words, a pitched and heated exchange erupted in response to our query, what is it about the whiteness of CLS that discourages participation of people of color? You might notice it's a, be a question begging thing. They're just assuming that there's something discouraging in the most progressive circles. Something's discouraging it, and it must be the whiteness that's there. The scapegoating of whiteness turns into a huge flashpoint. So eventually a match falls into this operationalized environment. Maybe it's that St. Floyd dies with the operationalized United States. Maybe it's that somebody gets accused of having made a racist remark in your church. Maybe it's your boss fired the wrong person or didn't give tenure to the right candidate or whatever. And all of a sudden, one precipitating event becomes a polarizing event and everybody in the organization who's now been oper operationalized takes sides. And the critical theorists don't care about anything except scooping up the sympathizers that this radicalizes. Several people who are conditioned to think a little bit in the direction of critical race theory become full-blown critical race theorists or open to it, and they scoop those people up and everybody else they scapegoat and target. And their movement just grew by that many. And that many people just learned to practice scapegoating the others. So when you go back to your walks of life and they wanna bring a diversity training into your school or your workplace or your church or whatever, that's what it's for. That's the purpose. And of course, diversity doesn't, we'll get to the linguistic manipulations, but diversity doesn't mean diversity. Diversity means commissars. How do you know? Well, you go to the University of Texas at Austin, their 
implementing a five-year plan, like no communist has ever thought of a five-year plan for diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're all five-year plans, look them up. They're all five-year plans to change your school, five-year plans to change your company, five-year plan to do this, five-year, they're all five-year plans, it's very uncanny. They have one for diversity, equity, and inclusivity, they call it at the University of Texas at Austin. They've earmarked many millions of dollars to hire diversity officers, but they say that to hire diversity doesn't mean to hire in violation of the Civil Rights Act. They don't say Civil Rights Act, they just say according to identity factors because that's actually illegal. It means to hire people skilled in diversity. In other words, critical theorists of identity, commissars in the new dictatorship of the anti-racists. And they're gonna implement equity, which is redistribution. And they're going to make sure that outcomes become more equal. And they're going to do that in an, in an environment of inclusivity, which means that nobody who is against the ideology is going to stay there for very long. It's a justification for silence, censor, pre-censorship even, and purges. That's what your DEI training at work is about. And when they call it anti-racist training, or racial sensitivity training, or unconscious bias training, it's the same damn thing. That's what it's about. It is to create the internal conditions so that when a precipitating event comes, your organization will polarize and they will scoop up the sympathizers and grow their movement. And each one of those people has achieved the only mission of critical race theory. They have had a racial critical consciousness awakened within them. Or maybe it's a sex critical consciousness. Maybe it's a feminist critical consciousness called feminist consciousness. Maybe it's class consciousness, but probably not because we don't do much vulgar Marxism these days. Maybe it's disability or fat studies critical consciousness, critical consciousness of your fat. That's all it does. Everything else is just technique. And one of the key techniques is what I just talked about, which is with the example, the er the example from critical race theory at the CLS conference. They insinuate themselves in, they insinuate themselves in, they fill in that space, they create the controversy, they position themselves as the dialectical opposite to whatever exists, your organization, your movement, whatever it is exists, here's us as the dialectical negation across some mass line of action as the Marxists would call it, and they initiate the dialectic according to those contradictions through a precipitating event and scoop up the sympathizers. Everything else is just technique. This is praxis. Turn to critical pedagogy for some more examples of praxis because everything, like I said, it's, it's either making paper clips, which I just talked about, or making paper clip making machines. If they take over your critical legal studies and turn it into critical race theory, they've turned your critical legal studies into a paper clip making machine or critical race theorist making machine. If it's critical pedagogy, they turn your school into a critical consciousness making machine and the children. That's the goal. That's the goal. So we turn what is praxis, you know, according to the critical pedagogist, we go back to Paulo Ferreri writing in the Pedagogy of the Oppressed. He said, fed up as I am with the abstractness and sterility of so much intellectual work in academic circles today, I'm excited by a process of reflection, which is set in a thoroughly historical context, always the historical context, that's Marxism, which is carried on in the midst of a struggle to create a new social order and thus represents a new unity of theory and praxis. And then he says in another part of the book, 
This can only be done by means of the praxis, reflection and action upon the world in order to transform it. So they're trying to make a critical consciousness in order to generate that. That's all it's about. That's what critical race theory does. Lecture over. No, I'm kidding. Everything else is, is, is technique, though. To give you an idea of the depth of this maneuver that we just described in the CLS movement, where they set up the dialectic within an organization, to give you an idea of the depth, there is a paper, and I know I've trotted it out, and I know it's in a small journal, and I know it's technically about women's studies, but these things, all forms of oppression are linked, mutatis mutandis, so that's okay. It's the same thing. This paper is called Women's Studies as a Virus. It's by two women's studies professors at Arizona State University called Brianne Foz and Michael Carger. There's a 2016 paper, I don't know if I already said that. Women's Studies as a Virus, and they uphold the metaphor of the virus as the ideal feminist or critical theory pedagogy. They say that their job is to take students, especially at the undergraduate level, who are majoring in other fields, and train them in critical theory methods, to think in the ways of these critical theories of identity, and then to send them, as they go off to graduate school or work, into their respective fields to infect it from within. In that paper, they compare themselves favorably to AIDS. I'm not kidding. Ebola and SARS. They also say that diseases that cause cancer are a good metaphor for them. Cancer. Because cancer represents transformational change. They are literally calling themselves viruses and saying that they want to cause cancer upon society. That's their words, not mine. I'm not interpreting them. They point out that conservatives, if you will, are like the immune system, but it would be better if that immune system were suppressed because the transformation will be better for both the virus and the host if there's no immune system. After reading that and understanding it, I find it difficult for anybody to tell me that the people who know what they're doing with this don't know what they're doing with this. They are very intentionally trying to infect everything. And it's coming mostly out of the schools because of critical pedagogy and the universities where this stuff all fomented and fermented and went bad in the first place. And they were training biologists, they mentioned that, to go into biology, go into medicine and whatever and turn that there making paperclip making tools out of people to go infect. And the way that they go and infect is to create exactly the kinds of precipitating events and dramas in a polarizing environment that they've already conditioned to be there, an operationalized polarizing environment. Another example of this, at a physics department near you, somewhere, this is a real physics department, but I won't name which one it was, there was once a woman who was going up for tenure she was quite woke within this physics department. She had already raised many stinks about the sexism of the department and sexism of physics overall. They always attack along sociological grounds. They talk about the sociology of physics instead of physics, the sociology of physics conferences instead of physics, because they suck at physics, so they talk about the sociology constantly. And so this woman's up for tenure, and they vote. The faculty vote, and she gets Unanimous support, approved, except three faculty members, all men, abstained from the vote. They didn't vote no, they just didn't vote. 
That for her was absolute proof of the rampant sexism of the department that didn't, <laughs> that didn't completely uh, unanimously support her tenure. She didn't want to have to work among those sexist professors who maintain a sexist status quo in physics, and so she literally rejected the tenure offer and went on a tenure-track job at another university. And as she left, the physics department near you went into complete meltdown, completely polarized. She left, left the thing in blazes, just absolutely on fire. And guess what? All these DEI policies now, DEI and hiring, they use a method called STRIDE to do hiring. That comes from the University of Michigan. She affected the praxis. In critical pedagogy, I quoted from Ferrari, Ferrari's guru child, not really his child, but the, the, the activist who picked him up, uh, Henry Giroux, talks about in one of his books about how he very proudly, he couldn't make traction, he couldn't get critical pedagogy to get picked up in universities and schools of education, colleges of education. So he, as a manner of praxis, and that's how he describes it, he worked very hard to get 100 critical pedagogists tenured in colleges of education around the United States. Every single one of those is an infectious agent. The way a virus works is very simple. It latches onto a cell, it injects its genetic material, that genetic material co-ops the operation of the cell, turns it into a virus-making machine, a paperclip-making machine, a critical race theorist-making machine. And then the cell fills up and eventually erupts with more viruses that go off and do the same thing somewhere else. The metaphor of the virus is actually ideal for them. They've accepted it themselves, they don't deny it. I don't hesitate to apply it. So this is how critical race theory operates. It, of course, uses a large number of techniques for this. We've already talked about the kind of dialectical method where they come in and they create the polarizing environment. So they position themselves as antithesis to whatever you're already doing. Oh, you know, love thy neighbor. Well, what does love really mean? You know, so, you know, maybe love thy neighbor means this very narrowed sense or whatever. And now your church is co-opted. The gospel itself could get co-opted in that regard. It doesn't matter what it is. Physics, maybe. With physics, you say, oh, well, the physics department's a problem. Well, you know, they create the flames. Well, where did the problem come from? Well, at some point, you have to point the finger at physics itself. And so then you see this paper that came out in Science, a feminist uh, literary journal at the University of Chicago, I think, recently, by, uh, what's her name, Chandra Prescott-Weinstein. And the paper accuses physics of favoring white empiricism. White people are allowed to do theoretical physics without having to have empirical basis for what they're doing, but scholars of color, of course, are not. So it must be somehow the discipline itself at some point that's making the community that way, and then you transform the discipline. That's called Lysenkoism in the, broad, the broadest possible terms. If you don't know what Lysenkoism is, thank your redwashed education. Trophim Lysenko should be a household name throughout the world. Trofim Lysenko is probably, if we say there was 100 million dead under communism in the 20th century, Trofim Lysenko is responsible for most of those. Trofim Lysenko was the uh, agriculturalist for the Soviet Union. He did not have accurate, we don't even have to talk about what his theories were, but they were Marxist-inspired biological theories that are wrong. Plants cooperate and share resources and all this crap, so overpopulate them. He's also, Men, was it Mendelian, not Mendelian, uh, 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 I can't think of the other guy. Um, Lamarck, yeah, Lamarckian in his beliefs, so he thought that if you plant some coarse grain like oats or something, it'll eventually turn into rye and eventually turn into wheat if you put them close enough together and you give them the right conditions and they'll share resources to get to the, it, terrible. 
The famines that struck the Soviet Union and killed millions, tens of millions, were the, were the result of the enforced application of this perversion of science through Lysenko. Western science is bourgeois science, it's propaganda. Lysenko's science is Soviet science, is communist science, is good. And then after it kills tens of millions in the Soviet Union, Mao was like, great idea. And the famines that occurred, well, some of them, they had, Mao had some other stupid ideas, um, like the thing with the birds. If you don't know about that, it's a thing. Kill all the birds, because they're not really Chinese birds, and they're eating all the fruit, but it turned out they were actually eating the bugs, so then after they killed all the birds, there was a giant famine because well, the bugs decimated all the crops. <sighs> Very Soviet. But Mao copied him, everybody starved. Tens of millions, if not 100 million people died. And that's the result of this perversion of science because the ideology was allowed to infect virally and get in in exactly these ways. So this, the stakes are high. This is, I'm particularly worried about it in medicine. We're seeing racial applications of medicine right now. We have a Boston teaching hospital that has adopted racial prioritization to overcome systemic racism in their admittance to their cardiac ward. That's actually happening. That is a Harvard University-affiliated teaching hospital in Boston. They've already initiated this program. You have, of course, all of the catastrophe going on with the trans-related medicine. Absolutely untouchable. Almost impossible to do anything. Medical lysenkoism is coming. Racism is a public health threat. We have to reprioritize care. We have to reprioritize everything. Social justice has to be made a pillar of medicine, has to be made a pillar of nursing, et cetera. This is all occurring now. The Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine, the highest medical journals in the land published these kinds of articles in almost every issue, if not every issue now. This is exactly what it does. So we, that's one thing. That's how it corrupts a discipline. That's kind of the dialectical maneuver. Another thing that it does, how, how this is affected, how do people fall for it? Well, it has two main tricks. It drains you of your so-called epistemic authority and it drains you of your moral authority to resist. Draining you of your epistemic authority is a fancy way to say it tries to make you feel stupid. You don't even understand what racism is. You don't understand systemic problems. You don't think in terms of systems. Nobody even can define critical race theory. You don't know what you're talking about. You're a crank, you're a conspiracy theorist, and you're on your heels. Oh yeah, well explain blah, blah, blah. Tulsa race massacre, explain the redlining, explain this, explain that, explain this, all on their terms. And it drains you of epistemic authority, so you're always fighting from a losing position. Meanwhile, it's not only tying you up in these arguments, it's advancing the praxis off on the side, installing this as policy everywhere it can get the chance. And those votes, by the way, as far as techniques go, are usually shady. Look at, for example, what happened at the Evergreen State College with their equity plan or whatever they called it that Brett Weinstein got in trouble for opposing, what happened there was they sent out the entire, revamped the entire policy of the college around equity. They sent out the plan in an email the night before the faculty meeting. The night before. The night before. And the link didn't work. And nobody even had a copy until Brett Weinstein did the due diligence to dig up the actual document and not get them to send it or fix the link, but to send it himself to the entire faculty. And then hardly anybody shows up, last minute meeting, and it passes. And everybody there is being browbeat, told they don't understand or that they're bad people if they don't vote the correct way. Training of moral authority. 
This is exactly what they do. You hear about this in other cases. You hear about, I've heard probably 10 examples. It happened in the Southern Baptist Convention, so I know that's one. When they passed Resolution 9 the first time, they run down the clock. Resolution 9 was on a docket out of 13. Resolutions 1 through 8 occupied an awful long debate all day long. We get to Resolution 9, bring that up for debate and a vote, and what do they say? Whoops, we only have five minutes left. We're out of time. No time for debate. Let's just vote on numbers 9 through 13 as a block. All in favor, run down the clock. Nobody has time. Find out about it at the last minute. Nobody has time. They know they're implementing stuff nobody wants. And they're using dastardly techniques, I can't believe I said the word dastardly, to do it. And part of that is because it prevents you from being able to argue back. And then when you try to argue back, it's too late because they're implementing, that's them implementing the practice while you're tied up in these stupid arguments about stuff they don't actually care about because what did I say they are? Effing liars. They don't care about the argument. All they care about is tying you up. You're arguing about whether or not anybody can define critical race theory. I spent the first lecture here talking about whether or not anybody can define critical race theory. Meanwhile, they're implementing it in some school while we're arguing about if it can be defined. Look over here, two-dimensional man, go. They have the praxis. They also, like I said, drain moral authority. They try to make it, make it feel like, and sorry, let me actually, when the draining of authority, it's not just to make you feel stupid, it might also be to make you look stupid to onlookers. You've presented a good argument back against it, they say a bunch of gobbledygook, that you have a hard time responding to in a short fashion, so obviously you didn't know what you were talking about. And even if you are confident, like, no, that was BS, people watching think you just got owned. So they don't believe you, they believe the person doing the manipulation. And this, I, I said that with epistemic authority, it happens with moral authority too. The goal of draining moral authority is to make you feel guilt or shame or to make other people perceive you as a bad person so that they will discount your argument. You're just a racist, you're a scoundrel, you're a sexist. It's misogyny that motivated you. You just want to keep your power, you just want to be privileged. You won't check your privilege. You don't even know you're privileged. All of these are moral abuses in a fake moral system that they've invented in their systemic critical theory. And while you're on your heels feeling like a bad person, no, I'm not racist because, and they're like, whoa, defensiveness. Exactly what happened at the CLS thing. Your defensiveness is weaponized against you. They're implementing it somewhere. And other people are watching and they're like, well, I don't know, maybe he is a racist. They can read your mind, they have the critical theory. They know that you have false consciousness and that they have awakened consciousness, woke consciousness. You don't have consciousness, they do have consciousness. So they do these two techniques, drain your moral authority, your epistemic authority and your moral authority repeatedly. They usually will try to do the smart, smart one, the thinky, thinky, what was that that John Leguizamo just said? Thinky, thinky talk or whatever? Is this what critical race theory is? There's academic thinky talk or something like that he said. It was so embarrassing. They drain, you don't know what it is because it's so academic, it's so scholarly. Do you have a PhD in that? Are you a doctor? You know, it's like they drain your moral, or your epistemic authority, they drain your moral authority, you racist, white privilege, won't check, male, whatever, colonizer, abuser, something. And then, meanwhile, while you're dealing with that, they're moving the ball. And they're also recruiting sympathizers that become an operationalized playing field for the next round of the dialectical approach. That's how it works. Now, as I said, as far as techniques go, this is all actually based in abuses of language. There's a wonderful essay, at least the first half of it's wonderful. If you're not Catholic, you may not like the second half of it, but if you are Catholic, you probably like all of it. 
from 1971 or 70, maybe by Joseph Piper, that's spelled like pie, P-I-E-P-E-R. And um, so it's probably, if he's German, it's probably Peeper or something like that. I don't know how to pronounce things. It's called Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power. It's incredibly important. Abuse of language, abuse of power. And these people, like we said, the old maxim is communists share your vocabulary, but they don't share your dictionary. We just talked about how they're misusing the words diversity, equity, inclusion. We've talked at length about how they're abusing the words racism, race, critical, theory, anti-racism. I like to bring up, as you guys know, I did a podcast on it recently. I like to bring up the example of how they abuse the word democracy. In communism, they believe that you don't have true democracy until everybody's truly equal. Because if you have more power, privilege, resources, money, et cetera, then you can amplify your voice where I can't amplify my voice. Therefore, we don't have true democracy. So when they say democracy, they mean presupposing communism and then democracy. So when we hear the Democrats these days who have taken up a lot of this kind of stuff, knowingly or unwittingly, that's your question to answer, um, and they say, this is an assault on our democracy, blah, 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 saving our democracy. We have to defend our democracy. This is about our democracy. What do they mean? Do they mean that they presuppose equity before democracy exists? Well, probably. Probably. Lenin was explicit about it. He straight up said that communism, that the true democracy only exists in communism. These abuses of language are how they do this. They manipulate the meanings of words. Of course, my, my social justice encyclopedia, Translations from the Wokish on New Discourses, is dedicated to trying to unpack this, but they make up new terms faster than I can unpack them. Words that mean kind of what you think they mean, like critical or, you know, the ones we've talked about, diversity. Oh, yeah, I like that. Where do I sign, you know? Off in la-la land. It's just, they're, they're doing this very, very effectively. And the old other maxim is that it takes an order of magnitude more effort to debunk bullshit that it takes to create it, allows them to get away with, while everybody like me is trying to write an encyclopedia to explain all this nonsense, they're creating 10 new words a week. Birthing person. Just creating new words. I mean, that one's kind of transparent, but you know, they're just manipulating language, white rage, um, democracy, whatever. There's a contemporary example where they've just completely redefined it, but I forgot what it was. Um, there's probably another one since we've been talking. So you have to understand that you have to pick apart their language if you want to understand what they're doing. This is one of their techniques. This is one of the ways that they raise critical consciousness. And then those people that they've scooped up understand the coded language. Why do you think they're always talking about dog whistles? What do you think they're making? They know what they're doing. Iron law of oak projection. It's always there. The other thing they do with language, though, is they create lots of different kinds of dialectical traps. You're over here, you're like, don't you think it's a little bit racist? You're like, ah, no, I'm not racist. And then I know a black person or whatever. You say some stupid thing. They call that white talk, by the way. And then the next thing you know, um, you know you're caught up in this whole trap, and they end up being able to flip the thing over by, by trapping you into what it is. These take three main forms that I'm going to talk about. There are probably myriad forms that are, that are out there. One is no-win situations. One is the Kafka trap, and one is the Mott and Bailey. So no-win situation, you've all heard the classic example. What they're actually doing is post-hoc analysis. They, they, uh, actually, it's, what is it? Petitio principi, principi, or whatever, Latin. Another language I can't pronounce. They've assumed their conclusion from the beginning. So the conclusion is, Racism. Racism is the ordinary state of affairs in society, not an aberration from them. It's so-called normal science, Delgado and Stefanczyk. The question is not, did racism take place, but rather, how did racism manifest in that situation? Robin D'Angelo. Same idea. Exact same idea. So I've given this example many times. I'll give this example again here. 
Imagine you enter a store, or you work at a store, and then two people enter at the same time, one white, one black, and you have to pick who you're going to help first. Imagine for the sake of the circumstance, the thought experiment, that it's gonna take you 10 minutes or so to work with whichever person you pick first. Do you pick white or do you pick black? And it's funny, when I ask the audience to participate on this point, every single time you can see how powerful their dialectic has been because literally nobody picks white. I have entire audiences who will not pick the white person first in conservative circles. Very conservative sometimes, not a single one. But if you pick the black person first, of course you did so because you don't trust black people to be left alone in your store. <laughs> which is racist. And also, you probably picked the black person because you wanted to pick the white person, but you wanted a virtue signal that you're not like that, so you picked the black person. You didn't really want to help. You're racist. But remember, you're supposed to have a racial consciousness. And you're supposed to be able to do it right. It's a no-win situation. But of course, if you had picked the white person, they would say, well, you prefer white people to black people. They're first-class citizens versus second. Therefore, racist. The conclusion was the same either way. It's like, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure novel, but the last chapter always ends up being the same thing. It's called, you're a racist. That's all it says. It's like, turn to page 273. You're a racist. That's all it is. Every single path leads to this. But the thing is, in real life, one thing happens, and they analyze that one thing, and they have the argument that they can work out backwards. No in situations. It's designed to make you lose. A second one is the Kafka trap. It's another kind of no-win situation, actually. They accuse you, say your critical legal studies conference, they accuse you of being racist. Have you even considered how whiteness is the reason why scholars of color like me don't feel welcome here? They ask that question, people get mad. Your defensiveness is proof that you wanna keep that unjust system in place because you're racist, because you uphold white supremacy here. And how dare you deny my lived experience that that's what I actually feel? Which you might notice would be easily manipulable by psychopaths who don't care what they say. All they have to do is come in and pretend to be racist and they can claim all the power over an entire organization that's running around like, you know, they're on fire all of a sudden. Kafka traps. K-A-F-K-A traps. Kafka. Kafka, like Franz Kafka. Like the novel Joseph K. No, sorry, the novel is The Trial. The character is Joseph K. And he's put into a uh, kangaroo court where every time he can... Uh, Every time he, he expresses his innocence, they take it as further proof of his guilt. You would say that. You would say that because you're a racist. You would say that because you're a misogynist and you don't want people to know. You would say that because you're willfully ignorant. It's all a manipulation of the, um, of A, the ability to read false consciousness in people or internalized whatever from their critically conscious super Gnostic position and uh, B, the manipulation of the you-would-say-that deferral from an ad hominem accusation. You can accuse the man if the man really would say it. The actual thief probably would say he didn't steal anything, right? You would say that. You, you're guilty, an actual guilty person. So white fragility, of course, is the quintessential example of this that people have run into. It's been modified in recent times because fragility is not strong enough to white rage, which came from one of our four-star generals if that doesn't make you feel uncomfortable. I don't know what should. White rage is the driving force, but it's just a repackaging in more uh, emotive terms of white fragility. White fragility is defined as a series of rhetorical maneuvers. A series of rhetorical maneuvers that white people deploy when they're accused of racism to avoid engaging the fact that they're actually racist. 
Whether you get upset, whether you lash out, whether you stay silent, whether you just decide, I'm not doing this, I'm gonna go away, I'm gonna ignore it, that's all an indication that you're actually too racially fragile to handle deep engagement with critical race consciousness. And it's going to continue to twist on you until you adopt a critical race consciousness. In other words, critical race theory praxis only does one thing, raises critical consciousness. So either it happens to you or somebody's watching you and thinks, yeah, they did get defensive. I've heard from countless people, mostly, whatever race brown is, many brown race people have contacted me about these brown fragility and brown complicity trainings at their workplaces. And they're told, you know, why don't you confess how you've supported white supremacy or you've upheld anti-blackness? How you've been racist against black people? Why don't you confess that? Imagine being the person who decides you're not gonna say anything. How do you think you're gonna get treated? So you gotta cook up some story. You gotta say something. Then your poor black colleagues are over here like, wow, you're all racist. So not divisive. So racial sensitivity. You know, it's very racial sensitivity. Racial hypersensitivity training, as I said. And then what happens is the facilitator will do this and then we'll pick out a couple of people and say, wow, you sounded a little defensive when you said that. Have you interrogated your feelings of defensiveness? Do you understand what they mean? We call that brown fragility. Or if, it's white, if you're white, it's white fragility. Your feelings of defensiveness are proof that you're implicated. And so maybe you feel guilty and you raise a critical race consciousness that you, I wanna do better, struggle session, cry, tear, tear, big dunce hat written with Chinese characters. Or maybe it's the four people sitting around you like, well, he did get defensive, what's he got to hide? And either way, they raise a critical consciousness. Doesn't matter who they destroy, remember, history uses people and then discards them. That's a Kafka trap. Your admission, or your denial of guilt is used as proof of your guilt. That's a Kafka trap. They come up in a variety of forms. White fragility is kind of the key example. The thing we talked about repeatedly before, white complicity, is why it works. That's what that's actually rooted in. Getting mad about it is white rage. It's just one version. The Martin Bailey. Martin Bailey is a very clever rhetorical strategy. There's a brilliant paper from 2005 or thereabouts by Nicholas Shackle called The Vacuity of Postmodern uh, Methodology. Thank you. Um, Nicholas Shackle, brilliant guy. And so he basically concocts this metaphor of the Mott and Bailey. Mott and Bailey is a castle arrangement for defense in that uh, third stage of history that Marx laid out, which is the um, feudalist state economy. So you might have a mile or so of uh, nice farmland or many miles or whatever, and you put kind of a ditch or a, a poorly defensible kind of thing around it. It's hard to defend the entire area. And then you build a big tower in the middle called the Mott that's extremely defensible, in fact, maybe impregnable. But it's dank and it's dark and it's stinky and it's a castle and it's no good and nobody wants to live there. It's just highly fortified. So when the marauding bands come and try to take your farmland, you can all retreat to the tower and shoot arrows at them and throw rocks and dump boiling oil and all of the gross things that people did at these, in these times and drive the marauders away. Then you can come back out and occupy the fertile farmland. For you Tolkien people, the Pelennor fields are a bailey and Minas Tirith is the Mott. Orthanc is the Mott of Isengard. There's your dork time for the day. <laughs> But there's your image. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, shame on you. <laughs> Get rid of your, your moral authority, you're bad people. 
No, I'm just kidding. Orcs are racist. Tolkien's racist. You can't. Never mind. It's, that's all done. <laughs> Have you noticed that all the elves are white? That's a real paper about that out there, that all the elves are white. And they're the best people. Archetype for humanity. So the Mott and Bailey is a rhetorical strategy where you have a very activist dimension that you want to try to put forth that's very hard to defend. Like that we should use schools to raise race consciousness in all of the children. And all white people are racist. And it's good to segregate in the schools according to race because of that, blah, blah, blah. And then... When you know that's going to get attacked, or critical race theory is a horrible neo-Marxist ideology that's trying to rip open Western civilization to make room for a liberation Marxist movement, blah, blah, blah. That's your Bailey, that's your farmland you want to occupy. Oh no, James Lindsay's on the attack. Retreat to the Mott, we're just teaching honest history. And the second James Lindsay's busy doing something else, probably dealing with queer theory, you're back out in the Bailey, raising critical consciousness and trying to overthrow society. That's the Mott and Bailey rhetorical strategy. You have a completely defensible position that's virtually impossible to argue that's a lie about what you're actually doing, but that touches it just at enough place in the truth to where somebody who's not putting a lot of effort in, who's not untangling the mountains of bullshit, isn't going to be able to tell the difference. What, don't you want to teach kids about the Tulsa race massacre? Don't you want honest history taught? We're not even, you don't want to teach, Republicans don't want to teach about slavery? Mott. And then they dive out back into the Bailey the second the pressure's off of them and they do the praxis. That's how critical race theory operates. This is their main technique. Shackles point in the vacuity of postmodern methodology says that the Mott and Bailey basically is the only thing they do. All postmodern linguistic rhetorical traps are rooted just in that. But I would say the critical theorists do it more and maybe worse than the postmodernists do and did. And the woke are a combination of those things that the critical race theorists are, so obviously they do a lot of it. That's the Mott and Bailey as a defensive structure, but it has an offensive use as well. We've already talked about it. No, don't you just want diversity? Isn't diversity a good thing in your company? Let's write a policy about diversity. Then all of a sudden, diversity means commissars once it's on ink. All of a sudden, you're going to have to sign statements and you're going to have to adhere to these rules. No, 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 it's just about bringing in people of different voices and different appearances, etc. No, it's people trained in diversity. And that's how we're going to get it once they get the policy passed. They use the Mott and Bailey as a Trojan horse by presenting the Mott, getting invited in, that's your Trojan horse, and then unleashing the Bailey on the thing that they now have institutional power over. One, they don't do that until they've gained enough institutional power to do it. These are the tricks they use. These are how they do the virus thing. This is like the spike protein or whatever it is that latches onto the ACE2 receptor that sticks the genetic material in and now you have COVID, which they think is a great model for themselves, perhaps ironically. So this is what critical race theory does. These are some of the linguistic traps and linguistic trips we could t tricks. We could talk about a handful more of those techniques. They're all basically the same kinds of things. Most of it comes down to the manipulation of language. Words have two different meanings. They deliberately manipulate the meanings of words so that they have an activist meaning in the praxis and their second dimension in critical theory and the regular meaning that everybody else understands and thinks they mean until it's too late. They manipulate the language, abusive language, 
facilitating abuse of power. Piper explains it as they, and you've heard this from me if you follow me, they create a pseudo-reality linguistically. And they force everybody to live in it. And Piper says the way that they do this is by creating a false logic. A parology, as Lyotard warned us about when we talked about postmodernism earlier. A false logic that will drain your epistemic authority because you're not participating in the false logic, so you clearly don't understand. You don't think in systems. You think that there's an objective standpoint. How naive. And by creating a false morality, a second morality, a paramorality. And that's where they drain your moral authority and browbeat you, call you a racist, call you a sexist, a misogynist. Some conservative who wants to uphold the status quo, alt-right, probably a Nazi. You can punch Nazis now because repressive tolerance. Everybody's a Nazi. And the whole point of all of these maneuvers is to raise critical consciousness of race within critical race theory, raise critical consciousness of whatever in the other identity theories, raise critical consciousness in general in neo-Marxism. And if we were still vulgar Marxists, it would be class consciousness, but the classes have been replaced by various cultural dimensions. That's all they do. And what they're going to do is come in, dialectically manipulate an environment with these various tricks and traps, continue to take over from within slowly, like a cordyceps mushroom, eventually taking over the thing, bursting forth, more spores, more viruses, whatever metaphor you want to have as their ideal metaphor, going out into the world to infect a new thing, to do the same thing, to turn it into paperclip making machines. And anything, like if your church says no, and it just gets set on fire and they walk away or whatever it is, well, that's okay. We didn't need another white supremacist institution anyway. So if it dies, if the host dies, that's fine. It was white supremacists that deserved to die. If it gets turned into a paperclip making machine, great, more paperclips. Everything that cannot be turned into more critical race theorists, discarded. Silenced, pre-censored, shut out of full participation in society, etc. This is the world we live in. This is how they do. This is what it is. This is how critical race theory or critical theory in general operates. And so let me just bring you back to the point that you know, we have on a shirt. I don't know if anybody here is wearing that shirt. Communism doesn't know how. Remember, with all of this critical race praxis, they don't know how they're going to achieve their ideal vision of society. They just know that enough people adopt the faith, it'll happen, as long as those people are also given all the power. If you break and gut an institution, maybe it's defund the police. We gotta defund the police for racial equity, all the racism in the police. Every libertarian in the world is like, I hate cops. Every single freaking useless libertarian is like, yeah, bad cops. Defund the police. What do you think that's about? Do you think it's about getting rid of police? I love my people, you're not hee-haws. It is not about that. It is called communist entryism. It is about getting rid of police who are not on their side. And then, oh no, look at the crime wave. What do we do? We hire more police. But whoops, we instituted a DEI policy for hiring before so. Before we did so, we only hire diversity trained and compliant police officers now. And now your police force becomes a Stasi. It's called entryism. It's been known about for a hundred years. Libertarians, I hate cops. Lord help me, bless their hearts. 
They don't know how. They just know that if the people who believe what they believe, the people that they have awakened and scooped up as they gut institutions and burn through their resources to create more paper clips, to create more critical race theorists, if they just get more and more of those people in more and more positions of power and discard everybody else, that eventually will hit a tipping point and bam, it'll work this time. Their whole mission is to raise critical consciousness. They do not want to teach your children mathematics. They don't want your children competent in mathematics, or more accurately, they don't care. They want to use mathematics to teach your children critical consciousness because it's all they do. They don't care if your child can read. They don't care if your child can do science. They don't care if your child knows what a molecule is. They don't care about any of that. All they want to do is raise critical consciousness and use every single subject in the school to do it. They don't care if you're going to do your job. They don't care if your corporation is going to make more product or profit. All they care about is turning your corporation into an entity that's going to make more critical race theorists and raise critical consciousness in society. If it's very useful and has a gigantic advertising budget, you're a media corporation for them now once they capture you. If you're a church, you're a media corporation to them now once they capture you. You have a very emotionally engaged flock, sometimes thousands strong, who listen to you and take you at your word for moral guidance. You're a media company to them to propagandize. They don't care about your faith. They don't care about your flock. They don't care about your people. They don't care about your company. They don't care about your profits. They don't care about your product. They don't care about your customers. They don't care about your children. They don't care about fucking anything but making more critical theorists until we have the revolution that they think is going to bring the utopia in their belief system, which is like a religion. And if you don't understand that about them, you don't understand anything about them, and you can't fight back against them because you cannot cure what you don't understand. So we're going to turn in about half an hour to another lecture about what we can do about this. And we have to launch from that position. And I will give you a preview. If you want to stop critical race theory or critical theories more generally, you have to remove them from power that they will always abuse to turn everything into more of itself. And they will burn through every, why do you think they target the upper or the lower upper class? It's like the neck for the vampire to bite, where all the blood is. And it's people who don't know quite what to do with their lives. They don't know how to find meaning, et cetera. Oh, I'll give you this meaning making structure. Oh, don't you think you're a little bit racist? You have to invite it in. Sunlight kills it. It's a pretty good metaphor. Maybe, the, maybe a vampire is a better metaphor, but isn't that kind of how viruses and cordyceps mushrooms work? I guess that's zombies, but whatever. Undead is undead. So the point is, you have to actually remove these people from positions of power, wherever they are, if you want to stop them, because that's all they care about. Their goal is to turn whatever they take over into one thing and one thing only, which is a machine to make more critical race theorists. And anything that falls apart on the way, A-OK. -okay. So that's this. That's what critical race theory is. Critical race theory is as critical race theory does, and what it does is tries to raise critical consciousness to destroy the world. Sleep tight. <laughs>